should America promote democracy abroad, or should we refocus on our own problems at home? This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me for this episode. I am Matt Parker. Today's brief is going to be discussing whether America, through our multiple agencies and military, should actually be promoting democracy as a form of government abroad, especially when we look at the news every day and see so many issues here domestically inside our own borders. So what we'll be covering is some recent data on what Americans think in terms of promoting democracy abroad. A second We'll focus on actually just one region of the earth that kind of is a case study, especially with Latin America, as there has been in the recent years a shift between the political spectrum on recent election of their candidates throughout the whole um, the whole southern hemisphere. And lastly, as a personal anecdote of what I experienced uh, whenever I was spending my time in Army Special Forces abroad and how through that work we in fact were spreading democracy in some in some way, even if it was kind of a second or third order, third order effect of what we're doing in you know country X, this is what I wanted to share with you, just so you get an idea. In case you never happen to you know spend time in the military or maybe the civil service like the Peace Corps, State Department, etc., what in fact are Americans doing in order to I'll, I'll use the word enhance the American brand abroad through our efforts. So with that, let me take a quick ad break and then we will get to work. Hey, welcome back, everyone. So the question is, should Americans uh, promote democracy abroad? What are they thinking about it? Well, according to uh, Bruce Drake, representing uh, Pew Research, uh, U.S. political leaders have long spoken of America's commitment to democracy as pivotal to its role in the world, whether it was Woodrow Wilson declaring in 1917 that the U.S. must enter World War I to make the world safe for democracy, or George W. Bush saying on his re-election speech in 2004, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture. More recently, President Joe Biden told world leaders uh, when they gather virtually in Munich Security Conference that, quote, we must demonstrate that democracy can still deliver for our people in this changed world. But in recent decades, uh, promoting democracy in other nations has not been a top priority for the American public. A Pew Research Center survey conducted, this is back in February 2021, found that just 20% of U.S. adults cited this subject as a top foreign uh, policy objective, putting it at the bottom of the list of 20 topics that were polled. So 19 other topics in this survey conducted regarding American foreign policy out one the issue of spreading a democracy abroad. Now, only about a quarter of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, about 24%, saw promoting democracy abroad as a priority, with even less support coming from Republicans and GOP leaners, about around 15%. So those surveyed were asked from a list of 20 priorities which ones they saw as top priorities when it came to long-range foreign policy goals. Those ranking at the top included American protect, or protecting American jobs, reducing the spread of infectious diseases, and protecting against terrorist attacks. The lowest priorities, along with promoting democracy, were reducing U.S. military commitments overseas, aiding refugees fleeing violence, and reducing legal immigration to the United States. So, now you kind of get a, at least some sense of where Americans who answered the survey were standing on this issue. I wanted to give kind of a, 
a real world case study of if we are to, as a country, be spreading democracy abroad, how is the best way about going about it? Because the reality is we have a checkered past of getting it right and then flat out getting it wrong in some circumstances. And I, I'm just kind of making, this is a, an editor comment, I guess, if I'll put it that way. M- mainly, it's just my opinion here. I'm not really backing this up with data. Because it's easy for me to quarterback, you know, chair this thing and say, oh, well, you did this wrong, you did that, you should have done it differently. I wasn't there in the moment I wasn't making those decisions. And I think we have to come at that honestly and say in that moment, that time, in American history, whatever date you're going to pull from, you have to be just as intellectually honest as possible when assessing the, the actions made. So I say all that to look back, and I'll, we're, ho- we're focusing specifically on Latin America for this context here. And yeah, in this 50s, 60s, and throughout the Cold War, there were some good decisions made about how we, as a country, were spreading our brand of government abroad in Latin America and the workings that we did with certain leaders who would work with us and dealing with ones who wouldn't. And we also made a tremendous amount of mistakes. And I think a part of that comes from often policymaking in the American context is usually conducted in the bubble of American life. What I mean by that is it is made by just a handful of decision makers often in Washington, D.C., who, who live and operate amongst the same types of people who think like they do. The idea, the ideological spectrum, it goes between right and left. What I'm talking about, it's just the world in which they inhabit and they look through that the prism they look through often resembles the one, the person next to them, how they look at the world. So when you have that kind of, I suppose, lack of diverse thought, Often you'll get policies that aren't rooted in actually like what I, we used to call an SF is like on the ground truth, meaning what will actually work versus what theoretically in a hypothetical situation could could possibly work. All right. You kind of get where I'm going here. So I wanted to pull out some key reporting from Adam Isaacson writing for War on the Rocks about this issue, especially in Latin America. If we are, in fact, going to re-engage in a meaningful way, spreading a democracy abroad, how would we do that? And he writes that neo-Cold Warriors are correct that the U.S. government needs to be engaging more and more audaciously with the nations to its south. But it needs to do so on a much very different set of terms and in a much more coherent and comprehensive way. Here are some of the principles and actions that should guide future diplomatic, security, economic, judicial, and social engagement. First, U.S. policymakers need to stop fixating on the right-left access and focus instead on the authoritarian democratic access. Authoritarians on the left are not friends of the United States. Authoritarians on the right are not either, regardless of the access they might transactionally offer. Fortunately, the region, Latin America, offers examples of rules respecting dem- democratic leaders across the spectrum. Now, a second guideline, then, is that when this democratic left does well at the ballot box, Washington needs to stop viewing it as a setback. This means ditching the old reflex of viewing a country as lost and deepening ties with traditional elites in the armed forces, which risk exacerbating military politicization and worsening civil military relations the election of a democratic left candidate or democratic right for that matter should be viewed as an opportunity for institutional stability and regional order such as a candidate 
can more effectively, peacefully channel popular demands for economic and social reforms. The United States might have to work a bit harder to forge a working relationship with them, but there's no reason to write them off from the start. Again, this is something that's happened in the past. If a leftist was elected in, in a South American country, there was a immediately, even if they were democratically elected by popular choice, that often was led to a, a negative reaction from Washington, D.C. So moving on third, this means being clear that democratic left does not equal pro-China. This is obviously a big topic on the minds of policymakers in the United States right now. A leftist leader may be more skeptical of the unfettered free market's ability to deliver and more wary of aligning unconditionally with the United States. He or she is probably no fan of the Monroe Doctrine, but that doesn't translate into an affinity towards other great powers. There's nothing leftist about the Xi and Putin governing models, which are free market-based, socially conservative, and increasingly colonist, colonialist, or imperialist. It makes little sense then to assume that victories like uh, Borks or Castro's carry any benefit to Moscow or Beijing. Though, if U.S. policymakers insist on assuming that and hold those leaders at arm's length from the beginning, it could be self-fulfilling. So instead, even if he or she meets with Russia and China, and perhaps even accepts goods and services from them, a democratic left leader should not be viewed as irretrievably lost to the other side. Signing on to the Belt and Road Initiative is not the same as becoming part of the Soviet bloc 50 years ago. It may just be a rational response to a generous offer, one that the United States government is only recently trying to measure up to with its initiatives like the new Development Finance Corp uh, Corporation and the Biden administration's Build Back Better World Plan. So fourth, it would be unwise to view the region's armed forces as a bulwark against foreign influence or against certain political views. In a region where civilian control over the military is unfinished business, assistance or messaging needs to avoid politicizing armed forces. And I'll talk a little bit about this here in a moment. I mentioned a, a trip I conducted as Army Special Forces. Under no circumstances should messages conveyed through training courses, exchanges, exercises, engagements, or defense diplomacy align alarmed forces with authoritarian leaders' agendas, whether directly or inadvertently. Assistance and messaging ought to avoid encouraging militaries' assumptions of new internal roles like policing, as Mexico has done with its National Guard, or crowd control, a role presidents have urged on reluctant militaries like in Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, and elsewhere. And it would, almost, it would be most dangerous for training curricula and other less formal messaging to propagate hybrid threat or gray zone warfare doctrines that portray legitimate social protest as the work of internal adversaries duped by foreign interest, unless the intelligence implicating a foreign power is overwhelmingly clear. So I, I want to give a little more context what's what they're kind of Isaac's writing about here. When it comes to messaging on how the a foreign military should operate, the author is just insisting that it should be clear that it's encouraging civilian control of the military. The military doesn't have a domestic role to play. And if there are, in fact, like protests or even riots, it should be an internal domestic police issue compared to a national threat, national security level where the military is getting involved. That's just what he's emphasizing here. So fifth and lastly, U.S. engagement with the region 
needs to happen not only with a broader universe of elected democratic governments, but also with a far broader spectrum of institutions and social actors within countries. A vibrant democracy is more than just political leaders, business elites, and security forces. A more multidimensional approach to security cooperation, for instance, would involve more than just a partner nation's soldiers, police, intelligence agents, and prosecutors. It would place equal importance on helping to strengthen a broader security sector, encompassing judges, legislators, local governments, oversight bodies, and even non-governmental security experts like human rights defenders, women's groups, ethnic communities, and security-focused journalists. It's just emphasizing the point that it needs to be more holistic than just than kind of narrow two or three lanes that we've been in before. So overall, if you're taking away what, what uh, Isaac is writing here, it's essentially... Let's not, as a country, America, when promoting democracy abroad using Latin America's case study, do not be, do not deem a leftist or a far right politician who is elected democratically, we're talking a legit democracy kind of election, as a threat necessarily to the United States and not look at it in terms of political ideology, but more like democratic versus authoritarian and kind of a more th- those terms because and he points out this and he's absolutely correct there have been both uh, elected leaders both on the right and left that as you could relate to as either a liberal or conservative here in the united states in that context that are very much authoritarian that you would not agree to so that's the emphasis that he's making and lastly whenever we do operate in these countries not to look at them in just mere silos that we have in the past but be more broad and holistic in our approach and this is where I'll, I'll kind of conclude with an example personally that I can resonate with. And I thought it might be worthwhile just to kind of articulate it a little bit. So you might have an understanding of Americans who are either in the military, uh, you know, st- work for the State Department, perhaps. Uh, again, Peace Corps is a great example. As what it is we're in fact doing, and I'll use my, a story of my own, a very simple one. Uh, back in the years ago, uh, I did a a multi-week trip to uh, Thailand, you know, not a place you might think we were deploying to, but this resonates to the point. There are Army Special Forces teams currently, I would argue, probably in over 60, maybe 70 countries. I'm ballparking here. The point is there's there are a lot, and what they're doing is actually in conducting a whole host of operations from training to counterterrorism, combat, foreign internal defense, a lot of things. And I'll, I'll use this trip to Thailand as just an example. There was, at that time, in the uh, around two, 2015, in the southern two or three provinces that connect to Malaysia, there was a, a large presence, uh, predominantly of this part of the country, that, of, of Thais who were actually Muslim compared to the rest of the country who were mostly Buddhist. And the groups operating in this area wanted to, in fact, kind of create their own uh, Islamic caliphate, basically no longer be Thai and just do their own thing. Well, obviously, it's our government didn't like that. And so as a result of not giving into those wishes, the Islamic groups operating in this area began um, putting IEDs, a.k.a. roadside bombs, in places that would uh, target security forces like police or even Thai military. So, as one of our responsibilities for this trip was to teach these guys, the uh, our counterpart, our counterparts in the Thai military, how to find IEDs and then how to take them apart. 
because they were you know getting squashed by them pretty good. And the U.S. military, after twenty or at that point, after fifteen years of counterterrorism uh, in Iraq, places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, had a tremendous amount of experience dealing with IEDs. So that's what like our military purpose of doing our job for being there was. Okay. That being said, as you can imagine, you're only working from you know say eight a.m. to four every day, and a big part of your responsibilities as just an American soldier is we always use the phrase of just winning hearts and minds. Basically, how do you get guys to like you in the country that you're deployed to? And I'll give you this example in Thailand. It's pretty straightforward. You do it in three ways. Soccer, karaoke, and drinking beer. That is how you become buddies with those guys. And, of course, we did plenty of all three of those things. And you quickly become friends. You see who's the on the, on the Thai side, who the talkers are, and who the more... Uh, introverted guys are, and you just kind of become friends with all of them. And you're just, at the end of the day, you're just trying to help them be better at their job. And a big part of that is growing that friendship because you could do multiple deployments to any of those countries over a 20-year career, right? So a big part of that is winning hearts and minds. And while you're in that country, you're also, we, we always used to say, like, hey, remember, you're you're an ambassador of the United States, which just means you are a, a representation of the United States and being army special forces, we were being that we were kind of a more smaller elite group that came with a, a more like a kind of a, not a telescope, but a microscope is the word I'm looking for. Can I add a microscope on you? Like how do these guys act? How do these guys operate? They'll, you know, we're setting a standard, so to speak. So that was a responsibility and we wanted to convey a good example of what the United States was. And so we're, as we're as I'm kind of explaining what we're doing during the day in this training, after work with karaoke and soccer, and then throughout that time acting as as you're essentially an ambassador of the United States, you are in a way promoting a form of government and a culture in the country that you're operating on, operating within. Those individuals that you're working with see you, and then you ref, reflect where you come from the government that you're that you belong to as something that is either going to be good hopefully in a positive thing that's because you're doing your the job right or if you're not it could be done negatively this is why it's very important and I, and I'll g- give even this example in a little more overt way we were um, spreading democracy of, uh, abroad was usually while like me and the non-officers on the team were teaching just like the, the tactics to the actual uh, soldiers that we were working with. The officers would often at least once uh, do a quick 30-minute kind of presentation on what we call the law of land warfare, which is based on international law of land warfare, which just means that there's human rights issues, uh, prisoner of war issues, all these kind of things, which is a form of law tied to democratic institutions. Right, it's an extension of what democracy is. So while all this is going on, I'm giving you the context of very niche kind of uh, special forces example. There are also conventional military exercises going on around the world between ourselves and allied countries, and all the while, you know, you're dealing with soldiers at that one-on-one level, and they know that we operate in a military that has civilian control over the American military, right? And that's not always the case in the countries that we're working in. So all this time, we are representing a form of government and a belief system and a cultural system. 
And the reality is our goal is obviously to enhance their tactics and make them more effective at the job to be a better ally in the region for American interest. And a big part of them being a better ally in the region is them to think our way, to act the way we think. And we have those abilities to leverage that with our experiences. I'm giving a very specific example of, you know, counter IED, how to defeat roadside bombs. Uh, but also we have the money to spend on training. So we just leverage these things in order to enhance this one relationship in this one country. Now we do that 60, 70 times around the world all the time, right? And this is the last kind of comment I'll make on it I, because I've been really hammering on the kind of government side of things, the more formal side of things. But we do we influence culture when we're working abroad. And i got to give this example because I didn't know what to think of at the time and it just made me laugh. After, um, it must have been a Friday, we finished up training for that day. Everybody got showered, and we were going to go to a go and go with dinner and then go to some local bar with the uh, two English-speaking Thai lieutenants. Great dudes. Great guys. Anyways, they come to, to uh, we're all going to kind of convoy over there, and me and a buddy hop in the, uh, this, I think it was like a Kia or a Hyundai, I can't remember, this little four-door uh, sedan of one of the lieutenants. So both of the lieutenants, Thai lieutenants, were sitting in the front driver and passenger seat, and me and my other buddy were sitting in the back. And I get in, and I'll kid you not, the Thai lieutenant was listening to Blake Shelton. And I saw I saw Blake Shelton's name on the radio. He's crying. I mean, I recognized the voice immediately. I'm like, I filmed it on that phone. I, I'll never forget this. And I'm like, <laughs> where am I right now? It was so surreal. I'm like, how is this Thai lieutenant listening to Blake Shelton? Why? You know, it just never occurred to me that of all the American music, he listened to country music, which I love. But it was just it was just hilarious. The point is, of course, we influence the types of governments that others uh, use and have, and we're influencing their culture as well and how they think and view us as an ally. And this is why kind of um, to wrap this up in my conclusion should america or should america not uh, be in the business of promoting democracy ab abroad especially when we're also very aware of all the issues we have here in the united states um and my belief my sincere belief is um yes we we should be promoting democracy abroad and it has to be and i have to put it this way it has to be with a very specific intent what do i mean by that I don't believe just in the altruistic sake of spreading democracy abroad, meaning I think democracy is good for all peoples everywhere. I, I How could I possibly make that statement when I haven't been to all places everywhere and I've never spoken to you know all types of people, understanding their background, their history? I mean, we've America has attempted to encourage democratic institutions in a number of countries where it's just been flopped on its face because we're going uphill against hundreds of years in culture and thinking, okay? So, yes, I think democracy is the right form of government for for people in the world, but a lot of them might not be ready for it or interested in it, right? So this is where it has to be more holistic and broad than just, just the military and government component. It has to be more culture as well. And the challenge is, if we're trying, if as a country, if we're trying to promote democracy abroad, the challenge that we have currently is that Americans themselves cannot even agree on the 
representation, the symbols of democracy, and what that democratic type of government should be. Some people arguing that we should rip down our institutions and start over entirely. So how can an ally, for example, in Southeast Asia, uh, take us, the representative of the United States at that moment, take us seriously and believe that, oh, yes, you're right, we, we should be doing these things instead of what we're doing currently? How can they take that advice on face value when they see America in the news struggling on these debates themselves? And I think it benefits American interest and ultimately keeps more Americans safe if more of our friends view the world the way we do and if we can have a, a more cohesive approach to that view, it would strengthen us even more so. I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. A shout out to a dear colleague and friend traveling abroad, uh, doing very good work in a more dangerous place than I'm at right now. Safe travels to you, and thank you for this idea. As always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Reef Before Impact. (laughs) 